the ancient future church. And for those of you who were not, for whatever reason, able to join us last Sunday when Dr. Chris Green shared, um, I would highly encourage you, if you've missed the two messages that we have, that we have spoken on thus far, uh, jump on the podcast. Uh, I listened to Jonathan's message as I was out of town, and that, you guys, was just a phenomenal foundation to help orient us toward what it means to be the church and perhaps more importantly, what it means to not be the church or what the church is not, should I say. And, and that was very clarifying. Though that, those distinctions were very, very clarifying. Because I think what happens is inevitably, uh, our professors like to say this in seminary, it's just the air that we breathe. Every generation throughout human history has, has certain challenges by way of uh, belief systems, by way of the cultural values at that time. And it's just, it's just the air that we breathe. So, for example, we as Western Americans, we as American Christians, there are certain things that are challenges for us that are different from other Christians in other countries or different Christ- other Christians in other times because there are certain things that are so pervasive in our culture, and it's the air that we breathe. So we have to, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, by revelation through the truth of his word, and by Christian community, we have to find ways where we can become aware of those things that we are so unaware of because of the culture that we're just steeped in. And so some of the things that Jonathan was mentioning last week about pragmatism and individualism, that's the air that we breathe. That's the air that we breathe. And and we can find ourselves without even consciously knowing it, entering into spaces like this and times like this and coming here with our hearts oriented in a direction that may not be faithful to God or his scriptures, i.e. coming uh, just to find out how we can live a better life or coming just so that we can get our needs met. And not that those things in and of themselves are wrong, but they're not the purposes of the church or the gathering of the church. So today, I, I, have a, I have a unique assignment, and to be honest with you, there's parts of this word that I'm going to bring that are so exciting, because I am, I am deeply, deeply passionate about what I'm going to share with you today, and there's also parts of it that are pretty scary because it's very messy. It's extremely messy, and I'm going to, I'm going to open up some things, possibly, that are going to be unresolved. They're, they're definitely going to be unresolved this morning. And they're potentially going to be unresolved over the next several weeks. And, and I'm okay with that, and I'm going to ask that you be okay with that as well. Uh, like any good Netflix show, I'm not a really huge Netflix show guy, um, but from my friends, what I hear is that, man, the key to a really great show is those cliffhangers at the last five minutes that make you want to find out what's going to happen in the next in the next episode. And I think some of that's going to happen today because there's going to be no conclusion to what I'm going to share. Uh, I'm not going to give a lot of implications. I'm not going to give a lot of solutions. I, I'm actually going to do a part two next week within the greater series of the ancient future church to what I'm going to be talking about. So, all the mystery aside, today I want to talk about uh, the church as a covenant family community. As a covenant family community. And let me just start off and say this. Those two words are very charged words. They are, they are filled with 
for some of us with very good images and with very good emotions and good experiences, and for some of us, they are filled with very, very painful and even very scary and threatening images and ideas. And I want to acknowledge that right up here at the very, very front. Of all the things that I have seen the church become and the church orienting towards, uh, the church as business. I mean, there are books and there are classes and there are seminars that have been conducted along the idea of we should, we should do church as business. And early on in my Christian journey, I mean, 20 years ago, because of my orientation towards leadership and my love and passion for organizational leadership and, and structure and order and all those things, I really, I really bought into that. And this is where we need truth to transform our minds so that we're not just conformed to the patterns of this world. And what I've begun to understand is that as if we're faithful to the scriptures, the scriptures do not give us a picture of a church as a business. The scriptures give us a picture of the church as a family. And family is messy. And family is unpredictable. And family is, is painful at times. And family is difficult. And by the grace of the Lord, we're going to get into some of these things today. So would you pray together with me? Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we ask for help. We ask according to the word that you would lead us and that you would guide us into all truth. Father, the questions that emerge or arise from difficult scriptures, from provocative thoughts, Father, we ask that your spirit would lead us. We do not presume to know everything about this subject. We don't presume to know everything about anything, Lord. But what we do presume is that you, O oh God, you are committed to us and we are committed to you. And Father, we choose to take a heart and a mind and an attitude of teachability and receptivity. And we ask, Father, that where these waters are a little scary or they're a little turbulent or they remind us of painful places, we ask that you would cover us and surround us, encase us, and keep us safe and lead us into the place of truth and transformation in life. And we pray these things today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin in the scriptures with Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 19. Actually, we're just going to read 11 through 22. This is going to be a lengthy passage. Ephesians 2.11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Now he's speaking exclusively to Gentiles, those who were not of the historical faith of the Jews in which most of us in this room would find ourselves in that category. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Very important phrase there, the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. You could even say you were without hope because you were without God in the world. But now, I love the but nows in the epistles, in Christ Jesus you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Very important language there. But now, 
you who once were far away. Implication there is, particularly to the people that Paul is writing to, that there was a definitive point in time when they were far away. They were without God, they were without hope, they were without Christ, they were without salvation, they were not in the community of believers, they were not in the family of God, and that would apply to some of us in our journey, that would apply to many of the people that we're in association with here in this world. Verse 14, for Christ is our peace, and he has made the two one, Jew and Gentile, he has made them one, he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. And why did he do this? If we reflect on some of the things that Dr. Green shared, in Christ's ministry of reconciliation, Jesus was all about taking divided subgroups and subcategories of people and through his life and his ministry and his teaching and his death and his resurrection, taking these two polarized people groups and making them into one, slave and free, male, female, uh, Jew, Gentile, all of these polarized groupings of people, Christ is saying one of the primary purposes for why I came was to make the two one. That has huge implications for us as a church. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself. This is not possible without Jesus. Reconciliation and oneness is absolutely impossible outside of Christ. Making in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Another way of saying this is reconciliation is not only impossible without the cross, it is impossible because in order for true reconciliation to happen, two polarizing views and attitudes, something has to die. How many of you have ever been in a place where you've gotten into gridlock? In an argument or in a belief system or in a debate? Maybe husband and wife see things differently and you just get to that place in marital therapy counseling, they call it gridlock. It's where we can't move forward. We're not seeing any solutions. We're doubling down on our position. Well, this is what I think to be true. Well, this is what I think to be true. And what we each think to be true is absolutely opposed to the other. That's what we call gridlock. We're not moving forward. What needs to happen in that place? Well, here's one thing that I know for sure is that as long as we're holding on to our own personal individual rights, as long as we're holding on to our own individual offenses, as long as we're married to our own perspective, as long as we're unwilling to bring any of those to the cross to allow God to touch them and change them and allow something of ourselves to die, reconciliation will never happen. So Jesus says, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm going to lead the way I'm gonna take my life to the cross and I'm gonna make it possible for you to come to the cross with me so that something of my death can enter into you in order that true life and reconciliation can happen where there's disagreement and polarization. I know, right? Thank you. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, family language here. Now here's, this is all leading here to verse 19. Consequently, you gotta pay attention, pay attention to those qualifying words in the scriptures. Consequently, consequently what? Consequently, in other words, because of everything 
that I just said that's pointing somewhere. Consequently, as a result of everything that Christ has done, now you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Implication is we were at one point foreigners. We were on the outside trying to get in. We were excluded from the club. He says, you're not foreigners any longer. What's the opposite of being a foreigner? You're a citizen. You're no longer aliens. You're not strangers. You belong. You're part of us now. We are all part of the same family called the people of God. You are fellow citizens. Look at the language with God's people and members. The NIV says God's household. Other translations say God's family. So now we're no longer foreigners, we're no longer aliens, we're no longer strangers, which means at one point we were, but because of the ministry of the reconciliation of Christ, we are now identified as family. This is the primary relational identification that God presents to us as members of Christ's body. How are we to relate to God as father? How are we then to relate to one another as family. I'm going to use a big theological word that I've used here before. I'm going to use the word ontology. A lot of times we talk about ontology when we talk about the character of God. That God is what God is, not because of what God does. God is who he is. He says this to to Moses. When Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, who am I going to tell Pharaoh that you are? What does he say? You tell him that I am that I am. That's all you need to know. What can you give me something else? Nope. I'm not going to define myself by what I do. I'm going to define myself by who I am. I am that I am. I've always been. That's ontology. It is the theology of, of essence. It's the theology of essence. God is who God is because God is that. Now, we can also talk about the ontology of the church. The church has an ontology which is different than our function. Let me, let, me, let me break this down. We in America, Jonathan talked about this two weeks ago, we are focused on function. We're focused on pragmatism. We're focused on effectiveness. We're focused on production. We're focused on what it is that we're doing. What are we doing? Being precedes doing. Our best doing will come out of a certain revelation of who it is that we are. In other words, we could give and not be a giving people, right? And we've done that here at Antioch Church. I remember 2010 when I first became senior pastor here, right after that, the, the, the earthquake in Haiti took place. And man, I threw it out there and we rallied and we responded. And we've done that over and over again. And we could give, but not necessarily be a people who are generous, okay? Now, here's what I'm saying. God has spoken things over his church that are, period. They are. They are. Now, through the process of sanctification and the process of maturity, we must learn to become that which we already are. All right, let me break this down on a personal level, all right? Every single one of us in this room, by virtue of What God has done in Christ, you are a son and you are a daughter, period. That is who you are. It is a part of your ontology. It is a part of your identity in Christ. Because of who Christ is, he makes old things new. All things in your life are new. Now, you may not be experiencing 
the newness of that which you want to experience, but that doesn't matter at this moment because God says you are in fact a new creation. Now over time, as you are living out your newness in Christ, you will become that which you are. Okay? And, and we, we could tack on tons of other identity in Christ realities. That same principle applies to the church, and I'm gonna be specific today and say that part of our ontology, part of our essence as a church is we are God's family. We might be a jacked up family. We might be a broken family. We might be a dysfunctional family. We might be a family that has got it all wrong, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. You are family. You're the family of God. And if I've got any clear target on a bunch of messy things that I'm gonna bring to you guys today, here is one clear target that I'd like to submit to you. Target number one is that we allow the reality of who God has created and called us to be, that we allow this truth to transform the way we view the church. I'll be honest with you. Again, the air that I breathe, that as much as I want this to be the primary lens and perspective by which I view you and me and us and God's people, it's not natural. It's not natural. It is not intuitive for a thousand reasons. I could blame it on culture. I could blame it on my own upbringing. But at the end of the day, if we're really, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we're really honest, we can't say to one another, if we're really honest, yes, I view every one of the strangers in this room as my brother of whom I'm willing, and my sister of whom I'm willing to lay down my life for, of whom I'm willing to be inconvenienced, and of whom I'm willing to sacrifice, and of whom I'm willing to take my own junk to the cross to allow God to deal with as a result of the things that are surfacing in me by being in family relationship with you. That's not intuitive. And yet, it is who God has called us to be. It's a brilliant plan. It's brilliant. I'm gonna take these strangers with all of their hurts and all of their strengths and all of their weaknesses and all of their pride and all their sin and all their selfishness and all their humility and all their victories and all their defeats and all their different perspectives and I'm gonna throw them all together and say, now, because of your relationship with me, you've gotta be equally committed to one another. Because what's natural is I wanna hang out with people that are like me and that affirm me and that think like me and that have the same kind of humor as me because when I throw a joke out and nobody laughs, I get super insecure. <laughs> so I want to hang out with people that laugh easily. I want to hang out with people that, you see what I'm saying? That's all of us. And yet God says, that's not the way that I designed it to be because that's not what's best for you. I know, right, Ruth? She said, darn it. Hey, let's look at another couple of uh, passages of scripture here just to just drill this home. Stay in the book of Ephesians. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter three, and then we're gonna jump back to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians three, verse 14. Three, 14. For this reason, Paul is writing, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family 
in heaven and on earth derives its name. Family is God's concept. It is God's dream. It is God's purpose. It is God's plan to have a spiritual family with he himself as the father. Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians one, verse three. Paul again writing, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not coincidental, he keeps emphasizing the fact that God is father in the book of Ephesians. And of all the epistles that Paul writes, the book of Ephesians, or the book of Ephesians is the epistle whereby he is writing on the ecclesiology, the theology of the church more than any other epistle. And it's not coincidental. He is constantly referring to God as father. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You were chosen to be holy and blameless. That's part of your ontology. How many of you could say, yep, I am holy and blameless. Everything I do, every thought, every action, every inaction, every word, every attitude, holy, blameless? No, but guess what? You're holy and you're blameless. It's who you are and you are learning to become who you are. We as a people called to relate together. You know, honestly, I'd be pretty, I would probably be pretty doggone holy and blameless if it weren't for all of you. and Christy, and Israel. <laughs> it's easy to be holy and blameless in a cave by myself when there's no one to disagree with me or throw Legos on the floor in the middle of the night when I'm walking to go close the window. It's easy to be holy and blameless. I can just clean up my bathroom and it would be pristine and immaculate forever and I would never be bothered. And then one person comes along and decides that they're gonna just create slime. That's a new thing now. My kids have learned and discovered how to create slime. I just put my hands all over it this morning, moving my Bible. Wow, what is this? Slime. See, holy and blameless. Still working that out. Telling you. Look at the, yeah, yeah, this one was blue. So verse four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is who you are. That's who you were created to be. That's who I'm created to be. And now together, that is who we are created to be. Holy and blameless. And it seems impossible. And guess what? It is. It is absolutely impossible without the work of Christ, whereby we can all come and experience his death and his life. And without the ministry of the Holy Spirit living in us and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us be holy and blameless together. You know what's more miraculous and supernatural than me reading your mail and going out and raising the dead? Living in community over time and in close proximity with you whereby we are continually becoming holy and blameless together. Believe it or not, that is actually more supernatural and more miraculous than me opening the eyes of the blind. I promise you, it is. Verse five, he predestined us, again, ontological language here, your journey, my journey, our purpose, our end in Christ, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Now, 
I had a revelation of sonship 10 years, 10 years ago, absolutely, radically revolutionized my life. Many of us in here have become beneficiaries of us growing in that revelation. But up until recently, my revelation of the sonship with the Father has been all about me and Daddy God. Failing to realize that if I'm God's son and Elliot is God's son as well, that means he's my brother. And that the father is doing something in Elliot's life that I should care about because he's my brother. And that if there is a way that I can enter into the work that our father is doing in his life or in our relationship, then I should give myself to the degree that I can by grace to that work because God is equally concerned about what he's doing in that son as he is in this son because he is my brother. Driving in this morning, I just I was I was I was trying to reorient my mind to say I'm going to look at every person in here. Now this is hard because I'm an only child. <laughs> this is hard, Christy. We're we something was happening with the kids, and I you know I stepped in, I did a little adjustment, a little training, and she laughed, and she just said. I wonder what you'd be like if you actually had a brother or a sister. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean by that? So here I am, an only child, being placed in this revelation that you are my sister and you are my brother. You're not just the church member. You're not just the tither. You're not just the ministry crew person. You're not just the leader. You're not just, you're, that's not who you are. You're my sister. In fact, let's take this a step further. We're going to get here in a second. I've got very little time to do this. But before Christy is my wife, she's my sister. Which means that when I violate her in some way, I'm not just violating my wife, I'm violating God's daughter who by design is primarily my sister. Now this will blow our minds. For, for those of you who have kids, Milan, Kenya, Israel, and Kingston are not first my children. They are my brothers. That'll mess with you as moms and dads if we don't get this right. They're my brothers. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 5, again, Ephesians, he's talking about the ecclesiology of the church. This is why he can say, fathers, don't, don't provoke your sons. Why? Because they're first and foremost your brother. And you have been given a responsibility in this temporal season of life on earth to steward them in the relational capacity as father to son, but you are growing them in order to relate to them as your brother because primarily they are your brother first in the kingdom. That's crazy. And if we allow it, 
It will transform the way that we treat our spouses, the way that we treat our children, the way we treat our neighbor, and the way that we treat one another. If I treat you and look at you just as a commodity, I heard this story years ago. Uh, this, is, this is pretty awful, but years ago, I heard of, of a pastoral group talking about their church in terms of giving units. I know, right? Massive, large church. They sat down, talked about their business review and said, let's, let's go back and let's review how many giving units we have. Antioch, you're not a giving unit. You're my brother. You're my sister. You are each other's brother and each other's sister. With God himself as our father. Okay, let's look at a couple of implications on this. This is where things get a little grisly. All right, let's go to Mark chapter three. I, I ran across an article of several weeks ago that I totally ignored. How do you like that for a setup? And I ignored it because the title of the article was The Idolatry of the Family. And I thought, I'm not gonna read that. And then the more that that kind of just settled with me and the more reading, praying, thinking, and conversations that I've had, uh, I think that there is something to this idea, particularly in Western Christianity, where, where we have idolized the natural biological family and the idea of what the natural biological family is to be in society, our standing and our place in society. And if we were to extrapolate this further, we might even come to the conclusion that some of the social ills and some of the problems that we're dealing with generationally could be connected to an unrealistic and an unhealthy version of the family that we have propped up over and above God's view of what the family should be. Just think about that. Mark chapter three, verse 31 through 35. Verse 31 of Mark chapter three. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does God's will. This is where things get tough because here's what I am not saying. I am not saying that we are to be irresponsible with our natural families. I am not saying that in, in some twisted way that we are now to idolize the church and church services and church functions and, and church activities in a way that harms and damages our natural family. I'm not saying that. Please hear me. But, but as I'm getting into some of the difficult passages of what I think God is, is, is bringing to the table, there, there is a sense in which kingdom commitment is to take priority even over natural family. And it's difficult because culturally, historically, and generationally, 
30 to 50 years ago, we so got this wrong. And we got this wrong, particularly with ministers. And this is why you see a lot of ministers' kids that want nothing to do with church. Because in the name of God, there was such neglect and there was such abandonment. And there was, there was such abuse. And it was religious and it was legal and it was, it was wrong. But it was all done in the name of God. And this is where we've got to be very, very careful as a people. Simply using the name of God does not give us license to justify harmful things, okay? And you've seen this, man. You've seen, you've seen daddies that were completely absent from the home because they were doing God's work. And so consequently, you have a generation of kids that grow up and they say, if they still follow Christ and if they end up into vocational ministry, they swing completely on the other side and they start making Vows such as this, I will never let the church get between me and my family. And now we've, now we've tipped the scales on the other side. Worst case scenario is you've got young people that now want nothing to do with God or the church because of how wrong that, that extremity was. And yet we have this difficult reality that in God and in the kingdom, as Chris said last, last week, water is thicker than blood. The waters of baptism are thicker than biological blood. The sense that, see, I think culturally we look at things like this. What God does in me individually and what God does in my family will inform the church. And I think in the paradigm of God, the church, and the kingdom, it's the opposite. That God is saying actually that your, your commitment to me and your commitment to my people should then inform your families. And that's a hard paradigm to wrestle with, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm not there, and it's not intuitive, but I'm wrestling. All right, let's, keep, let's read a couple more passages here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. The context of Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus is sending out his disciples on their first missionary journey. Their first missionary assignment, it's exciting. He gives them authority. He gives them power. He's like, hey, man, go do the work of the kingdom. Oh, but there's a caveat. Let's find out what that caveat is. Verse 16. See, in the beginning, he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you authority to cast out devils. I'm going to give you the authority to raise the, raise the dead and heal the sick. And we love that. I love that. Verse 16, he says, but I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, you've got to be as wise as snakes. You've got to be as innocent as doves. And you've got to always be on your guard because you're going to be handed over. You will be handed over. Not maybe. You will be handed over. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be questioned. Verse 18, on my account, in other words, because of me, you're going to be brought before governors and kings as witnesses. Verse 19, but when they do arrest you, listen, be at peace because I'm going to empower you to say the words that you need to say. At that time, you will be given what to say. Verse 20, it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death probably a little more disturbing is a father will betray a child to death. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. What is he saying here? He's saying that in some situations, and listen, this is, may not be our reality. It might be some of your reality, depending on what situation you grew up in or what situation you are in now as it relates to your family. They may or may not be believers in Christ, and you may be experiencing a very real form of this passage right now. 
There are people that, that are in our faith, that are brothers and sisters of ours, that their reality is in order for them to say yes to Jesus. It means that a brother very, may very well betray them to death. This is not fantasy land. Christy and I had a conversation yesterday morning with one of our long-term missionaries, Antioch's long-term missionaries. Yesterday morning, hour and a half, talking on Skype with them. And they said, please pray for us because the government is cracking down here in the nation that we are in and we have already heard stories of Christians, of Christians in church gatherings going to local officials and betraying other Christians and having them sent out of the country if they're foreigners or being put into prison if they're nationals. It is absolutely illegal to share the gospel in this country that they're in. This is reality. This is reality in some countries, and we, you know, we can't fantasize this. We can't romanticize this. Oh, you ought to just say yes to Jesus. Well, let me think about this, because if so, there will literally be a death warrant on my head by my family. Imagine that. And so this is where Jesus is, he's sharing some provocative things to us, whereby he is saying, guys, at... <laughs> I know this is hard, I know this is challenging, but at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, the family that I've called you into, my family, the family that has been bought by my blood and constituted by the Spirit of God, this family actually takes precedence and it supersedes the very natural family that you were born into. Now this is where, because we're going to go to the table, and this is where we just go... What do I do with this? I don't know. I think what we do is just say, God, help me. This is absolutely impossible. It's impossible without Christ. But I recall there was a, a verse last week that was shared where Mary, as she is pondering the impossible, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her as a virgin, will cause her to conceive, not a man, but God. And she said, all things are possible with Christ. What does this look like for family members who are fervently interceding, crying, laboring for a husband or a wife, or a child to come to know Christ. What does this look like for you? What does this look like for us? It does not mean, it does not mean that you abandon that post. Okay? It does not mean that you just give up. It means that somehow in this, in this hard, difficult tension, that you allow what God is doing in you as a member of this spiritual family or his spiritual family to inform and encourage and affirm and shape how you are living out your life in your biological family and to allow those to begin to work together. What do we do if, as a youth pastor, I've dealt with this. What do we do when, as sons and daughters, we have moms and dads saying, you can't go to youth service, you can't go to, you can't go to that church. What do we do? What do we do when a spouse says, you can't go to church anymore? How do we handle this? 
how do, we, how do we reconcile honor your father and mother with I've called you to be belong to another family? How do we reconcile this? These are hard questions. And I'm not gonna presume to have easy answers. But what I submit to you, as, as, I, as I step into this yoke, what I submit to you, is that God will, by the power and the grace and the wisdom of his spirit, he will give us wisdom and he will give us strength to live in this tension of belonging to heaven and living on earth and, and living primarily in a kingdom family while having responsibility in biological families. He will give us wisdom. He will teach us how to do this. And it will require patience. It will require grace. And we're just gonna let that settle. Next week, we're gonna talk about, okay, what does it mean? What are some of the implications that Jake is my brother and Courtney's my sister? What is the implication to that? What is that implication? And it's not just that we get together and do fun things and grill out food and watch football games together. Or that's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. What does it mean that the Ghana shows are my brother and sister? What am I responsible to? We're gonna talk about that a little bit next week. Let's stand to our feet as... Aaron comes forward and the ministers of our table come forward to prepare themselves. And listen, I don't want us to end heavy. I don't think that's necessary. I think we should, we should end open. We should end saying, God, our hands are open. We are in need of grace. And that's why we weekly come to this table to remind it that we are a people in need of grace. We also come to this table this morning in celebration of the fact that whether you feel like it or not or whether this has been your experience or not, you are called to belong to a family. And here's, here's a request that I have, and this request will be stronger next week. Request A is very simply, would you and I say to God, Father, would you orient and posture my heart to see your church as my family? In my attitude, in my speech, when I'm with them, when I'm away from them, in my openness, in my affection, in my commitment, in my sacrifice. There might be some of us here who would say, that prayer is very, very difficult for me because it's this very kind of people that hurt me so badly. I recognize that. And you may not be at the place at this moment in your journey where you are willing. My prayer for you is that as you grow in Christ, as you're pulled in, that a loving father would continue to heal everything that must be healed so that you can be regrafted and restored to your function and your place in spiritual family. Next week, there will be some explicit commitments where we will say, God, help me. Help me be kind. Help me be gracious. Help me to accept. Help me to forgive. Help me to love. Help me to serve. Father, today, as we approach this table, we approach with sincere gratitude in our hearts. Thank you that you have formed us into a family. 
I am asking today by the power of your Holy Spirit to redefine family and our hearts and minds and attitude the way that you define family. I'm asking today that that hurts and, and very real injustices that have taken place at the hands of family members, people that we should have trusted the most, who dealt the swiftest and the most painful heartache in our lives. I'm asking that grace and healing would be released. And I ask you again today, afresh and anew, that who we are called to be ontologically, that we would continue to grow into, that we would mature as a family of sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, would you come to the table today? Open hearts, open hands. I invite you to come exiting on the left-hand side. Receive.